Coming up on Omnivore, how cultural appropriation impacts food product development, our 2024 technology trends outlook, and what it's like to be a food scientist in a war zone. It's all ahead on episode 23 of Omnivore, from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. Welcome to another episode of Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology, where we explore the intersection of business, science, and technology in the global food system. I'm your host, Bill McDowell. Food scientist and native of Ghana, Abna Foley, founded Poke Spices to introduce consumers to the authentic flavors of West African food. But she says that all too often, new food products don't properly respect the global cultures and culinary traditions that inspired them. She spoke with Food Technology's Mary Ellen Kuhn about entrepreneurship and the fine line between appreciating and appropriating global flavors and cuisines. You founded a company called Poke Spices that's bringing West African seasonings to the market. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey as an entrepreneur, where it all got started, for example? While I was working in the food industry as a food scientist, as I sat in innovation sessions, there was a lack of representation of West Africa in innovation conversations centered around food ingredients, flavors, packaging. And this was concerning to me because I knew that West Africa had played a vital role and continues to play a vital role in global cuisine. So if you think about food ingredients like okra and granuts, they trace their heritage to West Africa. If you think about foods like jambalaya and gumbo, they trace their heritage to West Africa. However, West Africa was not featured when we were talking about innovation or product development or any of the R&D conversations. So I saw this as an opportunity to do something leveraging my West African heritage and my food science background to provide a solution to what I was observing. So you mentioned a couple of things that hark back to West African cuisine, but in general, how familiar do you think consumers are with it? That is a great question. We can, I can say firsthand, just speaking with consumers when we have trade shows or farmers market, that a lot of consumers are not familiar with West African cuisine or West African flavors. And part of this is attributed to how the media has in the past portrayed the West African region. If you think about it, it's usually a picture of famine or starvation of AIDS, diseases, all poverty. And so it hasn't afforded, I would say, the general consumer the opportunity to be able to see the West African region beyond those lenses, right? And so sometimes they ask me, what is West African food? And so we do the consumer education in letting them know how West African foods have flavor similarities to Indian and Thai cuisine. And then the light bulb goes off and says, oh, goes off in their head too. Well, interesting. Kind of in that same vein, then, this might be related, but you know, what are some of the biggest challenges you've encountered as, as you bring your West African seasonings to market? The biggest challenge I would say is 
getting the consumer to understand what the product offering is due to the lack of understanding or one awareness of West African foods and flavors and understanding of what the flavor profiles are. There are conversations I've had with entrepreneur friends who are also doing something similar in bringing awareness of West African foods where they've spoken to buyers or brokers who say West African flavor is, is just a fad. It's going to pass away, right? And so as we're trying to make inroads in extending categories to bring this awareness, is we're also experiencing a push to say this is not a long-term uh, trend or viable trend and so we are not interested but then if we don't have those inroads made then the efforts that we're all trying to make is going to slowly get eroded that does sound challenging our goal we just underwent a rebrand of all our packaging to make it more stand out, more visually and communicate our uh, what West Africa is. And we're hoping that with this rebranding, repositioning, we're able to launch our product in stores. Still, consumers prefer to buy product in stores. It saves them shipping. And so if we're able to get our product in store, we'll be able to have the consumer interface directly with the product, touch the product, see the product. So based on your experiences, I'd like to get some of your insights into the whole issue of cultural appropriation and food product development. And I'm thinking it's probably a good idea to have you start by just giving us a little bit of an explanation of what exactly cultural appropriation is and how much of an issue is it in food product development. This this question is one that has been swirling since the pandemic, since 2020. And I remember being on Clubhouse conversations with chefs, with product developers, who, and especially people from cultures that are trying to bring awareness of their cultural foods or culture to America. And the one topic that kept gaining a lot of interest was cultural appreciation. And the way that we as a group came to define it, it is as leveraging either the culture, the food, insight of a culture to develop something without necessarily giving homage or paying proper respect to the culture that it was taking from. And one of the, the things that came up was an example was the fufu challenge. Over the summer, people wanted to try fufu, which is a West African dough. It, it, it's like a dumpling. And so people got interested in fufu and it became a challenge on TikTok. But people were not being respectful of how they were eating fufu. Some were slapping fufu, tapping fufu. Some would eat it and regurgitate the fufu out because maybe they didn't like the flavor, the texture of the fufu because it's more of like a dumpling. But this is what people were saying. You want to bring awareness to the cuisine, but you're not being respectful to the cuisine. Um, juxtapose that to cultural ap appreciation, which is, bringing awareness of a food, of a culture, and being respectful of the culture and of the people. So I may not like it. And the response is, this is not my preference. It's not a texture of preference that I'm used to. Maybe it's an acquired taste. That is being respectful to the food and being respectful to the culture as well, right? And so one of the other dimension of cultural appropriation is not giving people from that cultural background the platform to share their own story. Right, because no one can have insight to a culture than someone who was steeped in that culture understands that culture. You're talking about something that you discussed in the article that we have in the magazine, that whole idea of respect. That seemed like a really big issue. It it, it is. And, and regardless of what the culture, whether it's non-Western or Western, I, I believe that you ought to be respectful of 
what other people take pride in, right? What other people value as dear to them because you're not just being disrespectful to the food, you end up being disrespectful to the culture as well. And that doesn't bode well for anyone when you do that. Get into a little bit of the nitty gritty. What are some tips you have for product developers that that are trying to bring an emerging cuisine to market? How how can they be sure that they're getting it right? One, I would say that immerse yourself in the culture that that food is coming from, right? If you're trying to bring a product. So let's just say you want to bring cassava chips, right? So cassava chips or yuca chips to market. Yuca cassava is indigenous to South America. You can find it in West Africa. You can find it in this South East Asian part of, of, of the continent, right? So ask yourself, number one, which version of variety would I like to bring to market? You have to hone it to a market, right? Now, if you're able to visit stores, so visit stores that have heritage. If they do have stores in America, visit stores that have heritage in that particular place and see if they have a version there and try it. Because typically those stores will try and bring something that, I'm using this word very loosely, authentic, right? Authentic to the culture and to the cuisine. Sample sample as many as you can to understand the complexity of flavor notes. Try and understand, have conversations with the people in the store. Um, and if you can, and even visit the, the, the continent or the area that you're trying to represent, visit the place for a week eat the foods, go to local restaurants, immerse yourself in the culture and try and understand the culture as much as you can. If you have somebody who is from that region or from that continent or from that country, have them be involved and be like a consultant to you to help guide the efforts that you are making. Because I believe that that will help give you valuable insights as to why ingredient A may work, ingredient B may not work, especially when you're working with ingredient substitution, right? Well, we, you talked a little bit about these tips, which are very helpful. And I know you're from Ghana. And so you are obviously in a really good position to bring a West African food product to market. But I'm just wondering how hard it is or if it's even appropriate if you're not, if you don't have roots in the culture to at attempt to bring a product to market that reflects that culture. I wouldn't say it's not appropriate. I think that if you do your research well, you do your homework well, and you give proper homage to the region, people are going to appreciate the fact that you did do your homework, will appreciate the fact that you gave proper homage and said, okay, for instance, if you wanted to make a, a stew-based dish or a sauce-based dish from, let's say, Nigeria, and you understand, understood the typical ingredients that went, went goes into making a red tomato sauce from Nigeria. And then you give homage to say this sauce was inspired or Nigerian style sauce. And then you list out certain things about Nigeria. People are going to appreciate the fact that you took the time to educate yourself. You took the time to prepare it properly. Yes, I know there are challenges, but at least the thought and intent behind it is going to be appreciated. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And that's such a good explanation and so helpful. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you something just kind of fun. What's yes. your favorite West African dish? My favorite West African dish is banku and tilapia. So banku is a cornmeal dumpling that is made by stirring the cornmeal until it becomes thick and molded into a, a ball. 
and then grilled tilapia. So you season your tilapia heavily with what I've been calling the West African Holy Trinity of Spices, which our seasonings are based on, which is your chili, pepper, your ginger, your garlic, onion, salt, other indigenous spices and herbs, and heavily season the tilapia and grill it. It's the most delicious thing ever. It sounds wonderful. <laughs> well, Abena, thank you so much for being with us today and wishing you continued good luck with Polk Spices. Thank you so much for having me, Mary Lynn. Very thankful. Abna Foley is the founder of Polk Spices. You'll find more of her commentary on cultural appropriation and food product development in the cover story of Food Technology's November issue. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment. But first, this word from our sponsor. Introducing IFT's Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Whether you're new to product development or need a refresh on the basics, IFT's Product Development Bootcamp offers a wealth of valuable insights, practical strategies, and real-world examples to take your product development to the next level. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. It's been nearly 60 years since mathematician Claude Shannon declared the dawn of the information age. So it's no surprise that the near-term forecasts for technological advances in food revolve largely around data. The speed at which data is now collected is driving rapid development of high-tech, intelligent solutions designed to help companies sort, manage, and analyze troves of information that can be used to optimize processes and solve challenges varying from the complex to the mundane. In her Tech Trends forecast for 2024, Food Technology Science and Technology Editor Julie Larson Brisher outlined three of the hottest areas for digital growth in the food supply chain. Artificial intelligence and machine learning, industrial internet of things, and tech-enabled traceability systems. We recently caught up to discuss the food industry's accelerated drive toward data-driven processes. Well, hello, Julie. Hey, Bill. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk about what's uh, coming up in the technology world. So you and I have been covering the food world for longer than probably either one of us wants to admit. This concept of digital transformation is not new, but this year's tech forecast focused exclusively on smart manufacturing technology. So what's what's going on there? Well, you know, Bill, as I noted in this year's tech forecast, it's been about 60 years since we entered the information age. And now you hear people actually refer to the information age more precisely as the digital age. And the reason for that is because the speed at which we can collect data is really driven by leaps and bounds, this very rapid development of high-tech intelligent solutions and in, in our daily lives and in business enterprise across industry. So Arguably, I would say our 
uh, ability to collect these mass quantities of data has really outpaced our ability or industry's ability to sort, manage, and analyze troves of information that can be used to optimize our processes and solve challenges from, it can be mundane, like uh, even form filling out, you know, quickly, or really complex challenges that we find in the food supply chain. So some of those advances that we're seeing right now is making the data that we're able to collect more effective to make it have meaning so that we don't just have data lakes and are swimming in you know loads of numbers and, and stuff. We actually are now able to use technology to make that data meaningful to our businesses. There's a lot of developments in the food supply chain this year. And the I think the ones that are kind of rising to the top are artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, the industrial internet of things and tech enabled traceability systems. It's they're moving uh, through their infancies and kind of taking their place in what I like to call the not so new next big things. So let's talk for a minute about artificial intelligence, because that is literally on everybody's minds, regardless of where you are in society, what industry you're in, what are some of the applications of how it's currently being used? What are some of the areas in which it's being developed? Where Where is, where is this going to ultimately offer the most uh, impact across the food system? You know, I looked up a report from McKinsey and Company, and it was a 2022 report on the state of AI, and it showed that the adoption of AI models and business applications has more than doubled since 2017. That's not too long ago. And businesses and industries are investing apace in this technology. So, Another great bit of statistic was that there is an expectation that the use of AI in the food and beverage market, it will grow from $7 billion in 2023, so this year, to $35 billion by 2028. I mean, that's it's a five in five years, that is 40%. Uh, compound annual growth rate. It's it's amazing. So it's that's a big number, but the I think the big number of applications is just as extensive. So we're seeing the most active areas of growth in the food industry, supply chain management, logistics, food safety, traceability and transparency, and product development. So AI is a powerful tool, lots of investment in this area, and it's really it's really come forward in things like in the food processing plant where they can use AI to do predictive maintenance modeling for production equipment and to improve your sanitation processes. In the fresh produce and raw meat industry, AI is used to do quality inline monitoring on the production line using controls. It can show you shapes and sizes so you can throw out things that you don't like or identify potential spoilage on on the line. It can help with shelf life estimation. And we know that camera vision has been used for foreign material control for a long time. So that's 
it's it's unbelievable and in the product research and development area is really interesting area right now um it's being used to develop sustainable and clean label functional maybe more highly functional foods um and there's a lot of food companies out there doing using like proprietary ai algorithms to innovate new products like in the plant-based space, but also to renovate old brands. So you're getting more nutrition or more functionality out of the foods. Are there some specific examples of how AI is being applied in R&D and product development? What are what are some interesting applications? Yeah, just in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of reporting here and there, it's usually a really highly proprietary area, AI, how you're using it, right, to to innovate or renovate new food products. But some of the really interesting ones are um, these partnerships are developing where like Unilever entered into a partnership with a biotech company called Hollow Biome. And what they're doing is trying to produce more functional foods and ingredients using AI that targets the gut brain axis. Also, ADM has partnered with bioactive ingredient company called Brightseed. They have an AI platform that's helping ADM to decipher the molecular interactions between dietary plants and gut microbes and their potential impact on human health. Other partnerships that are kind of interesting is Kraft Heinz did a joint venture with a food tech company called Notco, I think is how they say it, that resulted in the launch of Kraft Heinz's Not Mayo in the U.S., And the cheese brand, Bell Group, just this year announced that it has a partnership with a biotech startup called Climax Foods that leverages AI and data science to co-create low-carbon footprint plant-based portions of well-known, their well-known brands like Laughing Cow. AI is making all of this data more usable. But what are some of the advances that are happening in the area of data collection? You were talking before about the industrial internet of things and this whole idea of connectivity. How is how is that playing in? Right. Because where there's advances in software, there's going to be corresponding advances in hardware. And that's really what the industrial internet of things, sensors and devices are. It's the hardware by which we collect the data. And so there's been a lot of developments in terms of connected and wireless sensors, motors, controllers, actuators, anything that measures, monitors, tracks, or collects those data points to be analyzed. And the numbers are there too, where in the food and beverage industry, the the ability for IIoT devices in that market, the growth rate is expected to be at least 5% uh, throughout through um, 2027. So there is some developments and, and most of them are really in advanced sensor technologies that give you not only that like a real-time temperature or air or environmental monitoring results, but they are actually the algorithms are developed so that you get a more precise predictive modeling capabilities. So you can anticipate what the problems are going to be before they happen. So that's kind of the area where IIoT devices are really going toward that prediction, the ability to forecast, if you will, 
what the problem is going to be before it ever happened. Thanks for the overview, Julie. You know, we'll be watching. Okay. Thanks, Bill. Julie Larson Brisher is Food Technology's Science and Technology Editor. You can read her full outlook on next year's technology trends in our November issue. In 2018, Hala Ali became the first certified food scientist in her home country of Sudan. But her promising career trajectory was disrupted last April when a war began between the Sudanese armed forces and the paramilitary rapid support forces. The violence prompted Hala to flee her home in Khartoum to find refuge, first in Egypt and finally the United Arab Emirates, where she's now looking to restart her career in product development. Associate Editor Emily Little recently spoke with Hala about her experiences and the lessons she's taken away from this tragedy. Hala, thank you so much for joining me today. And I really want to start by asking, how are you doing today? Hi, Emily. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me for this interview. Yeah, it was a good day, actually. And now definitely feeling excited yeah, to be here joining you. So how did you first become interested in the science of food? This is actually an interesting question. As far as I remember, I was always interested in trying new recipes. Even as a child, I was so keen in, in trying uh, new recipes. Like I was so in love with creating food, enjoying the taste and the flavor and the texture of the food. Like trying actually to enjoy these details, actually, which wasn't fun for my mom because I would describe the subtle differences to her and she would uh, she would be annoyed by that but this is what turned to be what I'm doing now as a food scientist and I remember before the internet time the only way to try new recipe was to getting the recipe for example from your mom or your cousin or family member and I remember my getting like my new recipes were from my cousin who used to work as a chef this was very interesting part for me. I would wait for him to give me a new recipe and I would try that and I get his feedback and wait patiently until he come and visit us again. So completing my uh, university degree in chemical engineering was also giving me a chance to join a food industry, but that wasn't the case. Initially, I started in oil and gas industry. Years later, I decided that I would love to do something that I enjoy and I want to do it for the rest of my life, which was definitely uh, food industry. So at that time, I decided to make uh, another degree in, in food safety and I shifted into the food industry. So yeah, that's my journey into the food industry. And you were the first certified food scientist in Sudan. Tell me what that was like. That, even I don't remember like anyone yeah, before me did that in Sudan because at that time, uh, Sudan was under um, sanctions uh, from USA. So even doing that was not available in Sudan like uh, exam center. So... I have to really to think about it and to get a visa and to be in the 
U.S. in order to do that. But before that, I remember what the amazing thing that I did uh, joining the uh, IFT as a, as a member. And that really helped me. And uh, and the, in 2018, it's a year when I decided to do that exam. And I passed the exam and I became the uh, first uh, certified food scientist in Sudan. That's incredible. In your dialogue piece, you talked about joining a startup, Solar Foods. Can you tell me a bit more about that startup and what kind of work you were doing? Solar Food actually uh, is a startup company or it's a social enterprise that uh, work in the field of food processing. Their core business is to design and manufacture solar dryers, solar cookers, and drying vegetables, fruit, and meat. When I joined the company, they were only producing uh, dry, high-quality dry ingredients. And uh, at that time, when I stepped in order to develop like a new brand of authentic uh, Sudanese food products that ready mixes and seasonings that reflect the Sudanese taste, it was a very interesting project because uh, it has a lot of potential uh, to support many small farmers and also vulnerable women who were working in that company. And the company CEO herself, uh, someone who had a great vision actually to, and 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 also she had uh, a good mission that she was doing to support small farmers in the uh, most vulnerable uh, areas in Sudan, you know, like in the west part of Sudan or in the far east part of Sudan where she can support really small farmers um, using clean uh, solar energy in order to preserve their food and, and keeping it available for uh, a long shelf life and so they can sell it during the off season. I love what you said about having an authentically Sudanese brand. That sounds really important that from start to finish, this was created in your home country. We know Sudan has a very interesting cuisine culture because of the diversity and the location and the different weather in Sudan. So yeah, we have a very, very unique test that I think most of the people outside Sudan, they don't know about it. And Definitely, I think we were not really um, uh, presenting our cuisine in, in a way that it really represents the richness of the Sudanese culture. So shifting to something a bit more serious, um, you are a refugee. Um, and I want to talk about the moment the war started. In your dialogue piece, you talk about waking up to the sounds of machine guns. What was that like for you? And what has your journey been like since that day? Yeah, that definitely something that I'm still trying to process until now, like running from my home, carrying only the important documents and some clothes, thinking that I will go back maybe after a few days, and now to discover that I lost everything behind me, I lost my home, 
every important uh, valuable stuff that we have in our home and everything. It is devastating, actually. And um, I feel deeply sorry for everyone who experienced it in their life. As many Sudanese, I'm definitely affected like um, financially, emotionally, and I'm trying definitely to start all over again from a, a new place, which is not easy, <laughs> not for me and not for everyone. And we don't know how long this will take. We don't know exactly uh, how things will go, but definitely this affected me in many ways, as I explained. However, also there are some shifts in my values that I believe would help me in my future life also, I think, from this experience. For example, because I have faced like the worst fear that I have of uh, being in an uh, unsafe place or in an uh, insecure environment or all of that. Now I feel I have the strength to start in any new place without any those fears disturbing me in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, I really admire your resilience. And even just talking to you right now, you still sound hopeful about the future. So what are your next steps? What are your hopes for the future? Since the war started, I think I have been between different countries. Yeah, moving from Sudan to Egypt and now here in the UAE. I am trying to restart definitely uh, starting a, a new job and uh, finding a new home so which is not easy at the moment uh, as I said but also I would love to have this like a new chance to contribute into a new food business into creating also a new products that for example do something that I have never done before you know like yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a new chance with uh, with many challenges. But again, like when you feel like you had a second chance of living uh, and doing something and, and contributing, I think this is uh, the best feeling also that you can have. And also, uh, I believe uh, knowing that I have IFT network in my, by my side, this is also something that I. I'm very proud of being part of this community and I know that I can get the support that I need. Yeah, I'm very hopeful about uh, what is coming and how I can contribute to food business. Paula, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and being so open. Thank you. Thank you very much for hosting me. And as I said, yeah, like this is definitely a time for me where I really need to start growing my wings and fly again. Hala Ali is a certified food scientist and R&D professional currently residing in the United Arab Emirates. You can read her dialogue essay about her experiences in the November issue of Food Technology. This episode of Omnivore has been sponsored by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals 
with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of ift.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at ift.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.